Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. As I just put on the chat a few minutes ago, I am wondering if I should have asked Beverly to read this morning's New Testament reading. It comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, beginning with verse number one. Listen once again to the Word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you see why I might have wanted Beverly to read that passage this morning? I want to introduce you today to a new word. That word is ashikaka. Would you just one time say it with me? Ashikaka. Now that word might not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me and my family. That is, my parents and my younger brothers. On the day that I was born, about an hour after the delivery, my aunt and uncle and father were with my mother as she was slowly coming out of the anesthesia. It was, of course, the happiest day of their lives, overwhelmed by bliss and intoxicated by joy. Really? Someone laughed? Someone laughed at that? Really? It was a wonderful moment for them, as you can imagine, the firstborn in the family. My mother's eyes fluttered open and she turned to my father and she said calmly, Ashikaka. And my father said, uh, excuse me, Rosie, um, what was that? And she said, Ashikaka. 
and still not understanding what she was saying, my father said, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean. And then getting very, very frustrated that my father did not understand her gibberish, my mother said, Ashikaka! As if that made it very, very clear. So in our family, that is my parents and my two younger brothers, when someone says something ridiculous, uh, when someone says something outlandish, when someone acts crazy or nutty, we look to one another and we go, Ashikaka, Ashikaka. We have other words like that in our family. Punch four is one, for example. I suspect that all families have these words or phrases that are codes for other things. Words or phrases that trigger certain memories or point to particular events or recall very funny or maybe even very painful memories. Ashikaka. Something similar is going on in our New Testament reading this morning, and if we can hear the Ashikaka of today's passage, we might hear something important about who Jesus really is. Matthew is telling us the most important, most exciting story that has ever been told, and yet he begins his gospel with this genealogy. Name after name after name after name, and many of you, I imagine, like myself, are tempted to skip over this genealogy, all of these strange-sounding names. Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Boring. Why would you begin something so exciting? The story of Jesus Christ with a list of boring, hard to pronounce, difficult names. Well, these names might be boring to us, but they would not have been boring to Matthew's church. They would have heard the names and recalled stories, the faith stories that they had, that had been handed down for generations. Oh, Abraham, oh, Abraham is the one to whom God made that great promise. Isaac, oh, the knife at the throat, King David. Wow, what a leader, but oh, King David. So as Matthew's congregation heard these names read aloud, they would have known them nodded their heads up and down. A smile might have spread across their faces. Uh, they would have recalled some of the important stories that shaped who they were as the people of God. Most of these stories, anyway. But, well, how to put it? Uh, have any of you ever wanted to take a chainsaw to your family tree? Have you ever wanted to do some pruning? I imagine that you have. And my guess is that when Matthew's church first heard this genealogy, this list of names, they too wanted to take a chainsaw to their genealogy. Now, genealogies were common in the Old Testament. But it was highly unusual to have a genealogy like this. This genealogy would have left some of them squirming in their seats with their cheeks turning beet red, filled with shame. Uh, did you catch some of these names a moment ago? Four names in this list, the names of women. And they, they stand out like a sore thumb. W women? Women were not usually included in such a genealogy. 
And yet, that's exactly what Matthew does. He includes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba in his genealogy. Why? Why include these women? What is Matthew telling us about Jesus here at the very beginning of his gospel? Tamar is the first name to appear, the first woman's name. Tamar was married to a man by the name of Ur. Ur died. It was then the tradition that the next brother in line would impregnate uh, the widow so that she could continue the family line. That responsibility fell on his brother Onan. Onan failed to live up to his responsibility. He died. Ur died. Onan died. And then fell upon the next brother to impregnate Tamar. But their father went, whoa, 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 um, uh, Tamar, you were married to Ur, and he died. You were married to Onan. Well, he was supposed to impregnate you, and what? Uh, he died. No, 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 no. You know what, Tamar, this is what we're going to do instead. Uh, go back home, live as a widow with your father. And when Shelah is old enough, I will send you my youngest son, and he will marry you then. The years pass. But Judah does not send Shelah to Tamar. And Tamar is wise enough to know that her economic and financial security are dependent upon having a male in her life. What is she to do? She dresses up and covers her face in a veil, like a prostitute might do, and she waits at the, uh, at the gate of the village Judah's wife had died, he had grieved, and as he was going into the village one day, he, he sees this woman, this young woman, and he evidently liked what he saw because he procured her services. He goes to make payment. And Tamar says, no, 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 no. Uh, instead of giving me payment now, uh, uh, give me some items, some personal items of your own uh, as your pledge to me, and then I can collect payment later. Okay, that's what Judah does. Three months pass. Tamar is pregnant. She's beginning to show. Word gets back to Judah. Hey, Tamar is pregnant and she's been acting like a prostitute. And Judah is enraged. His family name has been shamed. And he says, let us burn her to death. Now, there was a provision in the law to stone a woman caught in adultery, but insisting on burning her to death is an indication of the depths of his shame and rage. But before he had a chance to light a match, Tamar sends these personal items back to him and says, ah, uh, the owner of these items is the father of my child. And Judah exclaims, she is more right than I. Uh, why? Why do we have this name in Jesus' genealogy? What a story. Uh, uh, have you heard many sermons on Tamar? Some? Most people have it. Oh, Desiree, I'm glad that you have. It doesn't get preached on very, very often, which is unfortunate. It's a sordid story, but if we can get past the shock of the sexual escapades, we can see that Tamar is no ordinary woman. She's no ordinary person. Indeed, she is a person of incredible resiliency. She did not allow herself to be exploited. 
and she did not allow herself to be victimized. In a day when women were not given a voice, could not own property, had no recourse to governmental assistance, Tamar pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until justice was done. She did not give up. And Tamar is one of Jesus' great-great-grandmothers. 37 grandmothers back is Tamar. And then the next woman on the list is Rahab. Rahab um, was a prostitute. The Hebrews are about to colonize Canaan. Joshua sends in spies. They go to the ancient village of Jericho. They hide in Rahab's home. Word gets to the king that spies are in the city, and he sends out a command that they should be arrested, but Rahab doesn't do this. Instead, Rahab protects these spies, gives them shelter, and then helps them to escape outside the wall of Jericho. Rahab is a prostitute, and Rahab is one of, well, one of Jesus' great-grandmothers. The next woman on the list is Ruth. I imagine many of you know the story of Ruth. There had been a famine. Naomi and her family moved over to Moab, where there was some food. Her two sons marry Moabite women. Later, Naomi's husband and two sons die. She decides to move back to Israel. But before she goes back to Israel, Ruth, this Moabite, Ruth, this daughter-in-law, commits herself to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. It's a remarkable act of compassion and fidelity. This great-grandmother of Jesus is the great-grandmother of King David, and yet Ruth is an outsider, a foreigner, someone outside the covenant of faith. And then there's Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't even call her Bathsheba. I wonder why. He just refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Many of us are familiar with the story of Bathsheba. She was the object of King David's lust, such that he took her as his own. He treated her as an object. He abused her. And so great was his evil that he arranged for Bathsheba to be killed in battle. But this is not a woman who would remain victimized. This is not a woman who would agree to be exploited again and again. No, she was never defeated. And Bathsheba became the mother of Solomon. And Bathsheba is one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus. I said there were four women in the genealogy. There are actually five. The fifth, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. A woman whose sexual shame almost pushed Joseph away and led him to abandon her, but he refused to do that. Mary, who might have been 14 years old, who was pregnant and not married. She, she is the mother of Jesus. Luke, uh, Matthew breaks with the norm, and he includes women in his genealogy, but not just any women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
Bathsheba and Mary. They're not, they're not at all typical or ordinary or traditional. Each is strong, driven, and determined. Four of the five are outsiders, foreigners. And at least four are involved in sexual situations that most of us would find objectionable. And yet here they are in Jesus' family tree, Jesus' mother and great-grandmothers. And the question I have for you is, why does Matthew include these Ashikakas in his genealogy? For as these names were read in worship, as the women's names were read, I, I can just see Matthew's congregation just sort of beginning to shift their weight uncomfortably and looking down on the floor, not, not even wanting to look up at the person who was reading from the scroll. No, 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 no. Uh, 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 really? Do, do you have to? Matthew, do you really have to include these women in your genealogy? Could we just forget them and go on without them? And the answer for us is no. For Matthew is putting us on notice here at the very beginning of his gospel that we can expect to be shocked and startled, disturbed, and offended. Our sense of right and wrong, our notion of propriety, our grasp of what is good and faithful and just will be turned upside down down. Jesus is indeed the long-hoped-for Messiah. He is the Christ. But his devotion to God and God's will will forever, will forever surprise and unnerve us. He will be as determined as Tamar. He will be open to foreigners like Rahab and Ruth. He will side with victims like Bathsheba. And he will stand beside those who are scandalized by shame like his very own mother. Look out, Matthew tells us, look out. Jesus is really going to shake things up and he will surprise you again and again. So maybe now you can understand why I suspect some in Matthew's church wanted to take a chainsaw to that family tree. But Matthew will not let us get off that easily. As we read the gospel, as we read the other gospels, we see that indeed their influence upon him is strong. Jesus would go on to say things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn. He teaches his followers to love their enemies. He heals the servant of a centurion, a pagan, and then he says that the centurion's faith is greater than any he had ever seen in Israel. He heals the sick and he opens up his arms to the outcast. And he opens up his arms and he welcomes children. And guess what? Jesus also opens up his arms and welcomes women. At a time when women were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi and learn. Hmm. So what do you want to do with Matthew's genealogy? Should we keep it? Do you want to cut it out? Karl Marx once said that religion is the opiate of the people, and by that he essentially meant that religion serves to pacify and placate the masses and keep the powerful in place. As Christians, my friends, we know that is not the case. There is within our faith this subversive element that always seeks to turn the world upside down so that we might be in a better position 
to behold who God is and what God is about in the world. Many, many years ago, when my wife was serving as an associate pastor, she led youth groups and she led children's ministries, and Jennifer, Jennifer was a beautiful little girl in the second grade. It's hard to imagine that she has children now who are older than second graders, but she is a teacher. One day, when Jennifer was in that second grade class, her teacher asked the class, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Lawyer, fireman, different answers. Nurse, doctor. And when it came time for Jennifer, the teacher looked at her and said, Jennifer, what would you like to be when you grow up? And Jennifer said, I want to be a minister. And the teacher laughed at her. And all the other children in the class laughed at her and ridiculed her. I wish that teacher would go back and read the genealogy in Matthew. Amen.